Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Mohit Kera from Baylor College of Medicine, talking about Peyronie's disease. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Carissa Chu. I'm a urology resident at UCSF. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Mohit Kara from the Baylor College of Medicine. Uh, he's a professor of urology in the Scott Department of Urology. Um, he's going to be giving us a 2020 update on Peyronie's disease. Um, and just before we get started, a quick announcement, just to make sure everyone's filling out their evaluations uh, at, the, at the end of each lecture uh, so that we can find ways to continue to improve this for everybody. Uh, so thank you. Uh, without any further ado, Dr. Kira, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you and good morning. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to give you an update on Peroni's disease. Before I get started, I really do want to congratulate UCSF and the program committee for putting on such an amazing program amidst this crisis. This is really a fantastic way to communicate and teach. Uh, and thank you very much for the opportunity to present today. Uh, before I get started, I do want to present my disclosures. Uh, I am a consultant for Endo Pharmaceuticals who does make uh, Zyflex. Uh, and I also was involved in the AUA Peronis Guideline Committee. And these guidelines came out in 2015. And much of what I'll be sharing with you today is from those guidelines as well. I always like to start my presentation with a little bit of history. And so uh, this really should not be called Peroni's disease. It should be called Fallopius disease because Fallopius was the first one in 1561 uh, to describe this abnormal curvature of the penis in a single patient. It really wasn't until 1743 when Peroni first described in five men uh, penile curvature without irritation. The thought was back then that this was due to infidelity, uh, other, other causes, and what they would have these men do would sit, have them sit in warm, hot baths in the hopes that these plaques would then regress. What's the prevalence of Peyronie's disease? We do believe that the prevalence is underestimated. Uh, you know, when I started my residency, we were taught that it was roughly 3% of all men had Peyronie's disease. We now know that it's anywhere from 5 to 7% of all men have Peyronie's disease. And some studies will show even up to 20%, particularly in the diabetic population. But suffice it to say, even if it's 5 to 7%, I just want you to think about that for a second. 5 to 7% of all men have Peyronie's disease, the significant uh, number of, of patients and, and, and men. Now remember, it's not so many, it's not so much how many men have the disease. That's multiplied by how many men are bothered by it. For example, uh, you may have men that come in with 60 degree curvature, 50 degree curvature, but they're not bothered by the disease. So that's really not a concern. But you have men, some men that have 10 degree or 20 degree curvature, uh, and they are bothered by the disease. So again, it's, it's not only how many men have the curvature, but what percentage of those men are bothered by it and wanna pursue some form of therapy. If we look at the pathophysiology of Peyronie's disease, uh, there's uh, several mechanisms. Uh, the first belief is this repetitive trauma to the tunica albiginia. When this trauma occurs to the tunica albiginia, then there's impaired tissue response to injury. You develop a scar and then a penile curvature. The best way I like to explain this to the patients is this. I say, look, Mr. Smith, we have a long balloon. You take the balloon and you put a piece of duct tape on the balloon. If you blow the balloon up, what do you think is going to happen? It's going to curve in the direction of the duct tape, right? So what are the treatment options? The treatment options are to put an equal piece of tape on the opposite side 
or remove the tape that's existing. It's a simplistic way of looking at it, but that's exactly what's occurring. Uh, now remember that repetitive trauma uh, can occur, but the, the pronies doesn't happen to everyone. And we do believe that there's a genetic predisposition that uh, enables some men to uh, have Peyronie's disease much more quickly than others. So what are the associated conditions? What do we teach the residents? The easy one is Dupuytren's contracture. We know that in patients um, with Peyronie's disease, up to 22% can have Dupuytren's contracture. Of those patients, 7% will have a first degree relative that has a Dupuytren's contracture. But the one that, uh, the other conditions that residents are not so familiar with are is uh, plantar fascial contractures, or known as lederhose disease. And finally, the third one is tympanosclerosis. So these are the associated conditions that you can see with Peyronie's disease. Location is important as well. Realize that the majority of these plaques are on the dorsal aspect of the penis. If they're on the dorsal aspect of the penis, the surgery is quite easy because you're placing ventral sutures in most of the time. And ventral sutures are very easy to, to place. You're not uh, bothered by the dorsal venous complex. Uh, we do know that anywhere from 10 to 20% of the time, these can be lateral and, and ventral as well. But the majority of these are going to be dorsal. Now, this is a very important concept of ED. We know that ED many times precedes Peyronie's disease. In fact, there were several studies showing that the prevalence of ED in patients with Peyronie's disease is up to 60%, and the ED can predate the PD in up to 50% of the patients. We also know that ED in these patients may be psychogenic, right? Because we know that Peyronie's disease is extremely disfiguring. These patients can be extremely depressed regarding the condition, and they have a lot of anxiety. And therefore, many of these patients can develop psychogenic ED. Why do I think this is important? Because we realize that, you know, when a man has a 100% rigid penis, it's very difficult to buckle and injure the penis. When he has a 50% rigid penis, he's not going to be able to penetrate in the first place. There's no injury. The trouble occurs when you're 90% rigid, 80% rigid, even 70% rigid, because he's able to penetrate, but he's much more susceptible to trauma. And therefore, you, it's not very uncommon to find that ED is going to be the first sign before you get Peyronie's disease because it has a higher predilection of developing Peyronie's disease. What are some of the uh, risk factors for Peyronie's disease? It can be Dupuytren's contractor, genetic, as we talked about earlier, family history. We talked about trauma, uh, intercourse, but also even uh, using intracavernosal injection therapy can develop Peyronie's disease, uh, urethral surgery. Uh, vascular issues, diabetes is high on the list, up to 20%, as I mentioned earlier. And one interesting concept also is low testosterone. Low testosterone as a risk factor for Peyronie's disease. And I just want to share with you some slides I think are important uh, and where we get this low testosterone as a risk factor. First, some basic science data. So if you look, this is a study by Shannon, it was earlier in 2003, where they looked at castrate rat models. And they looked at the tunica albuginea four weeks later after they castrated. And if you look on the left side, those are the controls. These are EMs. On the right side is a castrate uh, model. When you castrate the rat, what you notice is that the tunica albuginea becomes very thin, one-fourth the diameter uh, of the controls, and you get a significant increase in uh, collagen uh, deposition and loss of elastic fibers, suggesting that something is going on with testosterone and the integrity and the health of the tunica albuginea. 
In 2009, we presented an abstract uh, at the AUA looking at men with Peyronie's disease. Um, and what we found was that 76% of men uh, who had Peyronie's disease were actually hypogonadal, which was quite high. Uh, if you had ED, your hypogonadal rate was 41%, but if you added Peyronie's disease, it was 76.5%. That same year, Abe Morgenthaler's group had a very nice paper uh, that came out um, and basically showed very similar findings. In this study of 121 men with Peyronie's disease, roughly 71% of patients were hypogonadal, but very interestingly, the severity of penile curvature correlated with the degree of hypogonadism. Uh, so again, it was very interesting to show some signs that low T may be associated with, uh, with Peyronie's disease. A fascinating study came out by Cavioli's group. Uh, it was 43 hypogonadal men with Peyronie's disease. Um, and what he did was something very interesting. He was giving these patients verapamil uh, injections for treatment. That's what we used back then. But half the patients he gave testosterone and half the patients uh, he did not give them anything. He gave them a placebo. And if you look at the chart, those men that were receiving testosterone while they were getting the verapamil had a, a much greater improvement in penile plaque and penile curvature than those men that were not getting testosterone during the verapamil injections, suggesting that there may be some benefit in giving testosterone to these men as we're treating them for their Peyronie's disease. Now, when the residents ask me to say, hey, Kira, how can you explain this? It doesn't make sense. How can testosterone be beneficial? And, and how can low testosterone potentially be harmful uh, uh, towards Peyronie's? So they, I call this the double hit model. And one we know is that when men have lower testosterone levels, they're much more likely to have decreased rigidity of the penis. We know that ED is more likely to occur in men who have lower testosterone levels. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, those men who have mild ED are at the greatest risk of developing Peyronie's disease because they're able to penetrate and they're much more likely to buckle. But what's also interesting is that testosterone has actually been implicated in wound healing. And we know that it's been shown to help not only with pro, uh, pro um, increase, when you give testosterone, it helps uh, preventing pro-fibotic factors and it decreases anti-fibotic factors. And so, so we call it the double hit theory. Low testosterone, you're much more likely to get an injury. And if you do get an injury, you're much less likely to heal because you have low testosterone levels. So we at Baylor uh, several years ago started a trial. Uh, it was an FDA uh, trial giving uh, testosterone to men who are hypogonadal. Um, now, I don't believe that giving testosterone necessarily improves the curvature, but I do believe that giving testosterone can help prevent further curvature of disease. And that's a very important point because if a man walks in today and he has 40 degree curvature, how do we define success? One way to define success is if I get that 40 degrees down to 10 degrees, that's fantastic. But another way to define uh, success is to prevent someone going from 40 degrees, say to 70 degrees, right? Because we know that greater than 60 degrees is prohibited for intercourse. So again, preventing further curvature of disease in many cases is also a very successful uh, outcome point. So I do believe that giving testosterone early, particularly in the active phase, uh, can prevent further curvature of disease. And that's exactly what we do in our protocol. Men who are hypogonadal, uh, we do offer testosterone therapy uh, if they present with Peyronie's disease. So um, I was involved with the AUA guidelines. These were published. These are the first Peyronie's guidelines that came out in 2015. 
Uh, we looked at every single article we could find from 1965 to 2015. There were over 303 publications, 281 met the inclusion criteria. And what I'd like to share with you today is some of those key points from the guidelines. The first is really the assessment of the patient who presents with Peyronie's disease. And what you really want to do is you want to ask about comorbid conditions. Have they used any prior treatments? Some patients have received uh, vitamin E, they've received verapamil creams, uh, have they received verapamil injections? And you want to ask them about their symptoms, particularly the onset, duration, severity, any exacerbating factors, and is it stable? Because remember, there's a totally different treatment paradigm for patients who are in the active phase versus those patients in the quiescent phase. So the AUA guidelines, uh, statement number one, that clinicians should engage in a diagnostic process. And the minimum requirements you should have in your history is penile assessment of the penile deformity. Does this interfere with intercourse? Is it causing penile pain? And is there distress associated with the deformity? Uh, so those are important in the history and obviously a physical exam uh, to document the uh, plaque uh, location and size. Next is the examination. And so obviously it's important to conduct an examination in the office. Uh, there's some objective measures that you can use. You're seeing a goniometer here to help uh, look at the curvature. Uh, before we use the goniometer, we used to take pictures. And I remember as a resident, we would use a protractor and take, and take the measurement. But it's very important to get a baseline uh, in terms of curvature because this is your baseline before you start therapy. And this is an objective way to know, had you, do you have any improvement uh, in your intervention. So uh, you can use uh, a goniometer here as well. Now, when we made the guidelines, we felt that it was actually quite important that if you are going to uh, do any kind of invasive intervention on a patient, it's important that you perform an intracavernosal injection in the office and visualize the erection itself. In other words, as opposed to just going off a picture, uh, you really want to inject and visualize uh, with or without the use of a duplex ultrasound. But intracavernosal injection therapy prior to any invasive procedure is important and should be done. What about bother? Because as I mentioned earlier, if someone has curvature, but they're not bothered by the disease, these are the patients we don't treat, right? We only treat the patients that are bothered by the disease and want further intervention. One of the best uh, questionnaires you can use, and this was used when the, uh, when the collagenase was first uh, trying to get approval, is the PDQ, which is the Peroni's Disease Questionnaire. And they have a symptom bother domain as well, which gives you a very nice indication of how bothered a patient is by their symptoms. Now, there are two phases for Peroni's disease, and this is important. First, there's the active phase. How do we describe the active phase? There's pain with an erection, there's changing deformity. Uh, there's also what we call the 15-40-45 rule. In other words, 15% of patients improve on their own. 15% of patients in the active phase will get better. 40% of patients will have no change at all. And 45% of patients will actually get worse. So very important to realize that, you know, if you operate on someone in the active phase, they may continue to get worse and then you're gonna to have to operate on them again. And that's why you never wanna operate on someone in the active phase. This is only medical therapy. In the quiescent phase, this is when the, uh, uh, it's stabilized and you really to get a disappearance of the painful erections. And this is where you are really able to consider surgical intervention. 
Now, you can use pain as a somewhat of a decider if this is going to be the active phase or the quiescent phase, but you shouldn't use it all the time because realize that up to a third of patients in the active phase will present with a painless deformity. So let's look at some of the treatment options that are available for patients with Peyronie's disease. One, obviously, are the surgical options, and the second is obviously the medical options. And I want to start first by talking about the medical treatment options for Peyronie's disease. So when patients come into my clinic, and I say there are several medical, uh, medical options, I say there's three things we can do. We can offer you injections, which include verapamil, interferon, Botox, collagenase. Now most of the country, including myself, we move to collagenase. Uh, we can offer you oral or topical therapy. Uh, many, many of these are still being used, vitamin E, uh, but we typically use PD-5 inhibitors and pentoxifiline, L-arginine. And finally, there's penile traction devices as well. And this really encompasses the medical options uh, for patients. And most patients will choose medical therapy before they go into surgical therapy. So let's look at some of these. So for example, topical therapy. Some have used verapamil cream, uh, prednisone, um, and some have actually used some oral therapy such as vitamin E. I want you to realize that when we went through the, um, to make the guidelines, uh, we were very careful. There is no data to support the use of vitamin E uh, in Peyronie's disease. In fact, we felt so strong about this that we, should, we stated that clinicians should not offer oral therapy with vitamin E tamoxifen, procarbazine, omega-3 fatty acids, or a combination uh, of vitamin E with L-carnitine. So again, we went as far as to say that this should not be offered because there's no good clinical evidence or data to support the use of these medications uh, in patients with Peyronie's disease. What about injection therapy? And there's several options. The first one was actually uh, verapamil injections popularized by Larry Levine in 1994. As you know, verapamil is a calcium channel blocker, increases collagenase activity. Uh, we had to check the blood pressure every time we gave this injection because uh, patients would get high, could get hypotensive. Um, and this was an injection that was given every week or every other week for three to six months. And if you look at the chart, there is some benefit. You can see that the percentage of pa patients that do improve uh, can be anywhere typically from 15 to 38, 40%. It does, it does work. Um, the key thing with a lot of the earlier studies was uh, the study by ARENA. If you look at the study by ARENA over here, it shows on the top that if a patient was treated uh, in less than one year, meaning they were in the active phase, 50% of those patients saw an improvement in curvature. If you were treated after one year, then it was 10% of patients saw improvement in curvature suggesting that it was more effective to treat these patients in the active phase. So clinicians can offer intralesional verapamil for the treatment of Peyronie's disease. This was a conditional recommendation. Uh, this was not as strong as our other recommendations uh, because of the data that we had out there. The next one is interferon. Uh, this was popularized by Wayne Hellstrom. Uh, this is, uh, interferon inhibits fibroblast proliferation and increases collagenase production. Uh, patients could get a flu-like syndrome. We should give them Tylenol, NSAIDs, uh, sometimes even prior to doing the interferon injections. Uh, these injections are given weekly or bi-weekly for up to six months. Very similar findings. Uh, you do see a decrease in curvature. Uh, the percent improvement can vary depending on what study, up to 27% of patients. 30% of patients can see an improvement um, in, in, in this uh, procedure. Um, one interesting thing, and I want to point out on this is that if you look at this study, and this is very similar to other studies as well, 
is that whenever you use a needle and put the needle directly into the plaque and you use placebo, you actually see a significant improvement in curvature. You've, we've seen that with verapamil studies. We've seen that with other studies as well. Placebo can improve, cause a significant improvement in curvature, but the treatment arm tends to cause a greater improvement in curvature, which is statistically significant. And that's what you can see in this graph. But there is something to be said about the mechanical movement of a needle going through the plaque. We used to do this any from 20 to 30 passes, um, and it actually does break up the plaque. And even using saline, you can see an improvement uh, in curvature. Now, interferon did get a higher uh, recommendation. We gave this a moderate recommendation uh, and, and uh, based on our evidence uh, to use interferon in patients with Peyronie's disease. But suffice it to say, the most commonly used product now is collagenase. So I'll just give you a little bit of a background on collagenase. Uh, back in 2013, there were several studies that were uh, published looking at this. Uh, we call this the IMPRESS-1 and the IMPRESS-2 trials. Um, and they looked at men who were over 18 years of age who had men in the quiescent phase. They were not in the active phase. They had stable disease. And they had a curvature greater than 30 degrees and less than 90 degrees. And so uh, this is kind of the protocol that's been used by um, the AUA guidelines. So again, uh, if a patient has, uh, has to have less than 90 degree curvature in order to be a candidate for uh, collagenase, and they have to have greater than 30 degree curvature in order to be a candidate. Um, uh, so uh, those are the main ones. In the guidelines, we did follow the fact that these patients should be in the stable phase or quiescent phase. Clinically, I'll tell you that many of us use it in the active phase as well. But in the guidelines, you should be aware that it's in the stable phase between 30 and 90 degree curvature. And this one got a, a better recommendation. This was a moderate recommendation uh, based on the data that we had. So if, if many of you don't have experience with collagenase or Zyflex, I just want to show you how it works. Basically, we use this in terms of cycles. And a cycle will have two injections. So a patient comes in, they get an injection, they wait one to three days, they get another injection, they wait one to three days, and then they get modeling. You can get in-office modeling. Many of us offer this modeling at home. Then the patient waits six weeks, and then we repeat it again. And we do this four times or eight injections. I'll show you some of the uh, outcomes here. So this is looking at change in penile curvature uh, between collagenase and placebo. These are the two trials uh, I was telling you about earlier, Impress 1, Impress 2. And you can look. In the treatment arm uh, of collagenase, it was typically anywhere from 33 to 35% improvement in curvature. And if you were in the placebo arm, it was anywhere from 18 to 22%. And I think this is a really important point because many patients come to me and they say, doc, if I take collagenase, I heard this medication will make the penis straight. And I say, absolutely not. It's gonna significantly improve the curvature by about 33 to 35%. If you're not going to be satisfied with 33 to 35%, then we should talk about other options. But it's very important to set the expectations up right up front that this is not going to make the penis completely straight. It does improve it by 33%. And this is just a depiction of what you'll see a patient with a 33, uh, with a 33% improvement from baseline in curvature. And uh, we tell patients that this is a very important point. Now, I will bring up something now that's a little bit different. So sometimes uh, when we operate on patients and we will do a plication, you realize that one of the concerns with the plication is that patients lose penile length. 
And the formula that I typically uh, tell the patients is, I say, you're gonna lose about four millimeters for every 10 degree of curvature on average. So uh, clearly, if you have 80 degree curvature, you're gonna be quite concerned about the amount of length that you lose. But if you have 80 degree curvature, and I use Zyaflex, and I can say get the 80 down to even 30, 50 or 40, you can realize that when I do the plication, you're gonna lose far less length. And so many times we will use Zyflex for priming before surgery because the patients tend to be much more satisfied, right? So we, we will accept the 33% improvement in curvature with the uh, intention that we're most likely gonna applicate with a better outcome if we do both. So this is some of the earlier work that's been done. Um, and you can see with the uh, orange line that the collagenase uh, does continue to show significant improvement in curvature from baseline. And it's interesting because if you look at the treatment cycles, one, two, three, and four, after each treatment cycle, it continues to show improvement. And one can only assume, looking at this data, that maybe if we gave more cycles, maybe these patients would continue to do better. And I personally believe, yes, I think there are certain subset of patients that if you do give more cycles, they, they do do better. Uh, and we've seen that clinically as well. So uh, you should uh, all be aware of the complications associated with Zyflex. Uh, and clearly one of them is penile rupture or corporal rupture. Uh, in the, uh, it was documented as 0.5% in the trials. Realize that uh, you are not supposed to engage in sexual activity for two weeks after the last injection. Now, the company has increased that now, uh, giving um, recommendations up to four weeks. So after four weeks after the last injection, you should not engage in sexual activity. Um, also be aware that there have been reports of spontaneous penile ruptures. So I can tell you in our practice, um, you know, uh, the residents call and they say, Dr. Kara, uh, this patient, he was sleeping last night and he woke up and he had a sudden amount of pain in, in the penile tissue. And uh, he may, but we don't think he had a penile fracture because he wasn't having sex. And that's not true. With Zyflex, you can have spontaneous penile fracture without engaging in sexual activity. And the question is, how do you treat this? Do we treat it just like we treat a normal penile fracture, which is urgently go to the OR uh, or not? Um, may, there's a movement you should be aware of that we, many experts think that this is not typical penile fracture and that many experts now are observing these. Uh, many, some are not, and the treatment would be to get an MRI sometimes and to look, because that will give you a better accurate depiction of what's happening. But if there's any uncertainty, uh, sometimes uh, a lot of clinicians will just explore. But you should be aware that penile fracture, uh, in the absence of engaging in sexual activity, can occur uh, with Zyflex. So uh, the recommendation is clinicians should counsel patients with Peyronie's disease prior to beginning treatment with uh, intralesional collagenase regarding potential occurrence of adverse events, including ecchymosis, swelling pain, and corporal rupture. Now, I do wanna make one comment about the, um, how often you give these injections. Uh, this is a study by David Ralph's group saying that, you know, in, in Europe, they had to pay cash. And these injections are quite expensive. They can be now anywhere from $3,500 to $4,000 an injection. So for eight injections, $32,000. So what they were doing was they said, we're gonna only offer four injections and we give them one month apart. And what they found was very similar results. 
four injections, one uh, four weeks apart. Uh, this study was actually three injections, uh, four weeks apart. And they also found about a 31% improvement in curvature. So uh, some of us are now considering even giving one injection a month. Um, so you should be aware that the protocols are changing. But again, that's off-label because the on-label protocol is what I showed you earlier. I just want to make one comment on Botox. We did a lot of work with Botox uh, and Peyronie's disease. Botox has been implicated in wound healing. It's been implicated for helping with um, scar formation as well. So we actually uh, did a study looking at using Botox to help with scar formation and healing. So far, the results have not been great. Uh, the only problem I would tell you is that um, Botox can only be given once every three months. I wish it could be given more frequently, only because if you give it less than every three months, the patient can develop antibodies. But uh, it's one different way of thinking about using a medication to help with the, with the scar tissue. Stretching devices have become very popular. Uh, Larry Levine first popularized this back in 2008. Uh, this was the most commonly formed uh, form of stretching devices we used to use, uh, which is, uh, it was straight, it did not bend. Uh, this is uh, the fast size. You can also use the andropenis. In his initial studies, uh, 10 men with Peyronie's disease, 90% of men had failed medical therapy. Uh, and he asked these men to wear the traction device for two to eight hours a day for six months. And what did he find? Reduction in penile curvature in all men from 10 to 45 degrees, which is quite impressive, but the average reduction in curvature was 33%. Penile length increased by up to two centimeters, and girth increased by up to one centimeter, and erectile function also improved in these men. And if you look at the traction device data, there are a lot of uh, studies now looking at traction device as monotherapy, in conjunction with plication, in conjunction with excision and grafting, prior to doing a surgery, after using surgery, there definitely is a role in using stretching devices um, uh, for men with Peyronie's disease. The, the issue I see in my practices is compliance. So you have to do it. And if you look at the other earlier studies, uh, you know, two to eight hours a day, every day is a lot to ask for a lot of patients. So, so it can be quite challenging. But recently, um, a novel traction device came out called Restorex. Uh, this is out of uh, uh, Mayo Clinic, um, where their group actually developed a device that can be worn and it bends the penis in the opposite direction where you're uh, curving and it holds the traction in the contralateral direction. So in their device, they actually had these men wear it for only 30 to 90 minutes a day uh, or, or a control group with no therapy at all. Uh, and they did it for three months. These men were on average 60 years old. They had Peyronie's disease for at least four years and had about a 60 degree curvature. At three months, with wearing it from 30 to 90 minutes a day, there was a significant improvement in penile length, penile curvature, and erectile function. And so in this study, 77% of men who wore the therapy had improvements in curvature, 94% achieved improvements in penile length. So those are the numbers I typically quote patients, and this is a, a, a common device that I do prescribe for my patients. Realize that traction therapy is off-label for Peyronie's disease, um, but clearly, in my opinion, it, it is very effective. I just want to comment a little bit on surgical treatment options as well. Uh, there's three different categories. Obviously, there's the plication, which I touched upon earlier. There's the excision or incision in grafting. And finally, there's the penile prosthesis. And I just want to talk about each one of these briefly on when to decide which one to do. The first one is really you want to look at uh, preoperative considerations because if a patient 
tells you that he has significant erectile dysfunction. I tell them, there's no point in making your penis straight if you cannot get an erection. There's no point, right? So if you're able to get an erection, even if it's with intracavernosal injection therapy, it makes sense to consider a plication or an incision or excision of grafting. Uh, hourglass deformity is important because we know you, you cannot be really treated with application. These are typically treated with excision or incision and grafting. And degree of curvature makes uh, a sense because, you know, clearly if I'm losing roughly four millimeters for every 10 degree of curvature and someone has 90 degree curvature and you're going to placate that patient, you need to really counsel them on the amount of penile length loss that they're going to experience. So let's talk about the tunical plication. So it is a fast, easy, it's a very simple procedure. Uh, uh, patients are very satisfied. Uh, obviously, most of the plications, as I mentioned earlier, are on the ventral aspect of the penis. So a very a small risk for causing any kind of injury or sensory injury. Uh, but the main disadvantage, as I mentioned earlier, was shortening. Now, one of the best things you can do, you can give them the uh, idea of four millimeters for every 10 degree of curvature, that's fine. Or I tell them to take a measuring tape and I say, when the penis is erect, I want you to measure from the base all the way to the dorsum of the short side. And I want you to me then measure the, from the base and I want you to measure the long side. And I want you to realize that we're going to make the penis as long as the short side, right? It gives you them a very good understanding of how long the penis will be once we finish the plication. So this uh, is actually inducing an erection prior to surgery. Uh, I used to use a lot of intercavernosal injection therapy. Now I'm using uh, injectable normal saline uh, and using a, a, a butterfly needle and just injecting saline and inducing the erection. Uh, but in either case, you just want to induce the erection. Most of the, uh, most of the uh, applications are on the ventral aspect. And so I really like making this ventral midline incision. I don't like making a circumscribing incision, particularly for ventral applications. It's very simple. You make a small incision and you use it as a window technique. And then I typically use this, uh, the 16 dot uh, popularized by Tom Liu uh, using a 2O Tycron non-absorbable suture. Um, very simple procedure to do. It, uh, sometimes in my opinion, you'll need more than 16 dots. You may need several more, but you can use as many as you need until the penis is completely straight. Uh, and then uh, th this is obviously the end result. We just typically tie our sutures down. We induce an erection again. Um, and uh, remember that even if you have a slight amount of curvature left, very slight amount of curvature when you close the skin, that will make a difference in bringing the penis straighter again. So my incision for a ventral plication is a midline incision. If it's a dorsal plication, it's a circumscribing incision, and then you want to place the sutures. Either you can remove the dorsal vein or you can put it just lateral to the dorsal vein on either side. Remember that congenital curvature of the penis is not Peroni's disease per se. Congenital curve of the penis typically is a curvature that's ventral, and we call it almost a banana shape, right? And so these curvatures require many more sutures, typically almost uh, completely up and down the entire uh, dorsal aspect of the shaft. Uh, they are not just a discrete plaque. It is a congenital curvature, and it should be treated differently. Incision and grafting, uh, so there's two options. There's excision and grafting, incision and grafting. I prefer to do incision and grafting. I make a double Y incision. Uh, I think that the incision and grafting has a far less rate of erectile dysfunction. Uh, clearly, the advantages are that I can preserve penile length. I can uh, treat a, uh, a hourglass deformity, but the risk of ED is a real one. And uh, you, know, you really have to be careful because the ED rate can be anywhere from 20, even up to 30% in some series. 
when you're lifting the neurovascular bundle, you can cause a paresthesia uh, to the glands, so you have to be careful as well. Um, you always want to oversize the graft about 10% because it will get, uh, there will be some contracture uh, as well. So there's many types of grafts that you can use. I've historically used tutoplast, um, uh, made by coloplast. It's, um, uh, made, it's a human pericardium. Some have used SIS as well, but I think the two most common are the allografts or the xenografts, which are either tuto, uh, human uh, pericardium or uh, small intestine uh, mucosa. Both are the most common. So just some, some figures here. This is a, a plaque. Uh, you want to identify the location. Uh, we induce an erection. Then this is an excision in grafting. You want to make sure that you lift up the dorsal venous complex. I typically start on either side of the urethra and work all the way around. So just make sure that you're not having any injury to the nerves. Uh, once you excise the plaque, the key is to oversize the graft. That's a very important point. You oversize the graft by uh, 10%. Uh, I use a 4 PDS. I suture the six, I suture the four corners, and then I also suture in the uh, septum uh, to recreate the septum as well. Uh, and I, I lock each one of these. When you uh, suture this down, very important to put the penis on stretch. You want to put the penis on stretch as you suture down your graft. And this is the final result uh, with the graft in place. I will then uh, inject normal saline to make sure there's no leaks inside this uh, uh, monastomosis, and then I will also put any sutures I need to confirm that there are no leaks. So, so finally is the penile prosthesis. And again, this is a very important um, uh, surgery for patients who have concomitant ED and Peyronie's disease, because again, there's no point in fixing the penis and making it straight if there's curvature and if you can't get an erection. So uh, one of the techniques that we use for, uh, with, uh, with, uh, a penile prosthesis is the modeling technique. Uh, we can actually also do controlled tunical releases or incisions inside the uh, corpora cavernosa. So this is the modeling technique if you haven't seen it. And essentially what you're doing is you're putting rubber shods on the pump itself because you don't want to injure the pump. So you put two rubber shods uh, going to each one of the cylinders. And then what you'll do is you'll bend the penis 90, uh, for 90 seconds in the opposite direction uh, where you're curving and you'll hold it there for 90 seconds. Your release and then you'll put more fluid in and you'll do it again and you'll do this several times. If you can get the penis to be less than 30 degrees, you're set, you're done. Because we know that with continued use of the penile prosthesis, uh, that 30 degrees will get better over time with more regular use of the penile prosthesis. So what do the guidelines say? They say, look, if a patient comes in and you're gonna do one of these surgeries, make sure that they're in the stable phase, they're not in the active phase, and make sure that if you're gonna do a plication or you're gonna do excision or incision grafting, make sure they're able to still get good erections with or without uh, pharmacologic agents. If you're gonna do penile prosthesis, these are in the patients that uh, already have ED and it's warranted in those patients. And don't forget that if a patient does have ED and you put in a penile prosthesis, you can still do a plication and you can still do an excision grafting. We do that uh, if we're not able to get them less than 30 degrees with the modeling technique. So here's our protocol. Uh, patients come in, they get a penile duplex. Uh, we give NSAIDs, we do give Pentox and Cialis, five milligrams daily. I normalize their serum testosterone levels if they're hypogonadal. Uh, we do offer a penile stretching device or a VED. I think the VED is much better for patients who have uh, hourglass deformity because the negative pressure I think does help. Uh, and then we offer them intercollagenase uh, if they are a candidate. We then see them six months later and we reevaluate. 
And uh, some patients will continue to get Zyflex. We have had patients go on and get another eight injections. Uh, we continue the medications. But if the patient is not satisfied at that time, that's when we start talking about surgical intervention. So here is the algorithm from the AUA guidelines. A patient walks in, uh, he has the symptoms. Uh, you have to first decide, is he in the active phase or is he in the quiescent phase? The guidelines state that if he's in the active phase, you give them NSAIDs and you wait till they come back till they're in the stable phase. Um, I, did, we did, I put a circle around this. We, we did find some data to support sh shockwave therapy, but only for pain, not for curvature. The data would suggest that for pain, there may be some benefit. Uh, once you know they're in the stable phase, uh, you can then decide if the erections are good or bad. If the erections are good, uh, you can offer them uh, intracavernosal, uh, interlesional injections or a plication or an excision and grafting. One comment, there's a lot of clinics out there that are offering PRP and stem cells for Peyronie disease. I just want you to be careful. For PRP, there's only one trial out there. This was 11 patients, 80% uh, reported improvement uh, subjectively, but no uh, objective data. And that's what we have for PRP. There were many clinics that were offering um, stem cells as well. And I think you just have to be very careful. We do not have uh, data today to suggest that stem cells should be used in clinical practice for Peyronie's disease. It's experimental, it's investigational. There's good animal data to support it, but not yet in humans as of yet. So in conclusion, the prevalence of Peyronie's disease is higher than we expected. It's roughly about five to 7%. Uh, low testosterone may have a role in the development and treatment of Peyronie's disease. Intralesional injections that have thus far proven efficacious include verapamil, interferon, and collagenase but only collagenase is FDA approved. Initial penile stretching studies suggest improvement in penile curvature, but more studies are needed. Shockwave therapy may be considered for penile pain, but should not yet be used to improve the curvature. And finally, PRP and stem cells may be effective for Peyronie's disease in animal models, but are really not ready for prime time in human studies. So thank you for your attention. And then I do have this one last slide. Um, what did you think about today's lecture? Please share your thoughts by taking the survey. Once again, thank you very much for this opportunity. Thank you so much, Dr. Kara. That was an excellent overview. Uh, a lot of clarity, a lot of practical advice. Um, so thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, we've got about 15 minutes or so to address some of the questions. Um, anything that's unanswered, we'll get onto our website and have everything filled out by um, you know, text format. So people will still be able to get everything answered, hopefully. Sure. Um, but we've got a number of great questions uh, coming in and I'll, I'll just get started. Um, so a couple of questions about um, your management experience uh, with penile fracture after collagenase use. Um, what kinds of patients could be managed conservatively, if any? Um, you talked about MRI, any role for ultrasound in these patients? Yes, that's a great question because this comes up. So initially when I started my practice, um, you know, if someone I was suspect, I suspected they had a penile fracture with Zyflex, I used to take them back. I mean, I would say, look, you know, we know that the ultrasound's not 100% specific, MRI's not 100% specific. If there was a high suspicion, I'd take them back. And then as we started doing more and more, we realized that we can use the ultrasound. We can use the MRI. They are good tools to let us have a better indication of who may have a penile fracture. And clearly, I do feel that the MRI is better than the ultrasound in trying to detect uh, who has a penile fracture. 
And as we started going along more in, in doing this, there's now movement that you know, patients with penile fractures can now be observed, depending on how bad the fracture is. You, know, it, you, you talk to the patient, you see how long ago was the fracture, are they still able to get erections, even though they have a fracture? Um, we take all of this into consideration. Um, but I, I do start using the MRI much more, the ultrasound more. And again, you can't ever get faulted because you were concerned and you wanted to explore the patient. Let's be honest, right? If you were truly concerned, you want to explore them, then explore them. But I'm just noticing more and more amongst experts in the field that they're starting to observe more and more of these penile fractures. Do you ever go by size of hematoma or kind of what would be your threshold to? I think, to I think those are very important. I look, at, I look at hematoma. I look at are they still able to get an erection? Uh, how large are the hematoma? I look at the pain. Sometimes patients are in so much pain because of the swelling. And they say, look, I just, want, just decompressing them uh, helps them a lot symptomatically as well. So you have to take into account all of these factors and how suspicious you are that they actually had a, a true penile fracture, right? And so there is a little bit of art in deciding uh, if there is one or not. Clearly, if you see one on MRI uh, or ultrasound, that would lead you one way as well. Got it. And then intraoperatively, you know, because they've received the medication recently, um, you know, is it much more difficult to repair? What are some strategies yeah. that you might have? I think that's a great question. When intraoperatively, uh, we repair them just like we would uh, anyone else who had a penile fracture. The question is, do you continue with the injections, right? because typically the fracture is near the location of where you put the, where the lesion was, the plaque. And are you concerned about uh, uh, causing another penile fracture? Uh, I do believe that if you've had a penile fracture before with Zyflex, you may be more susceptible to having another penile fracture. So in our practice, we don't continue the injections. So if you've had a penile fracture and I've had to go in and repair it, we typically talk about other options or other therapies. Got it. And uh, kind of going off of that, do you, for your hypogonadal patients, do you continue them on um, testosterone supplementation during the course of Zyaflex as well? I do. I do continue them. I do think there is a beneficial effect uh, with the integrity of the tunica. I do think it helps with uh, uh, improving curvature of disease. You saw the caviola study that I did show you earlier, and that was with Rapamil. I do think there is a benefit uh, in giving patients testosterone, hypergonadal patients, not eugonadal, but hypergonadal patients, testosterone uh, when treating them with for Peyronie's disease. Got it. Great. Um, great question here. Something that we've experienced in San Francisco as well. But um, if if collagenase is not covered by insurance, are there alternatives, or um, how have you kind of dealt with that in the office? Uh, several ways. So uh, if they can't, uh, if collagenase is not covered, we will use Rapamil. Look, for, for a long time, even during my residency, even beginning my practice, we use Rapamil and it works, right? It's very cheap. Uh, so if a patient says, look, I cannot afford collagenase, is there any alternative? I go back to Rapamil and, and we use it in the past. Um, there's other alternatives. If, uh, if, some, you know, if you use the European model, uh, they say, look, we're not going to do eight injections. We're going to do three. I'm going to separate one apart. And if you're paying cash for these injections, maybe we'll do three one month apart because in the European study uh, by Dr. Ralph, uh, they saw 31% improvement uh, with using this technique. So there are other ways. You can decrease the amount of Zyflex you give or you can switch it to Verapamil. Got it. Okay, great. Um, question about, uh, you, you, about a third of patients in the acute phase may not experience pain and may not have any obvious symptoms. Um, how do you kind of follow these patients and determine when, they're, when they've entered the quiescent phase? 
The most important thing about the quiescent phase is that there's no further curvature of disease, right? And quiescent phase, the number we use is 12 months, but you can't use one number for everybody, right? So some patients will enter the quiescent phase at six months. Some patients will enter the quiescent phase even up to 18 months. It's just a rough idea. So what you really have to do is really pay attention to the history and talk to the patient about, have you noticed any further curvature of disease? Once that there's no, been no change in further curvature of disease for at least six months, you know that they're in the quiescent phase. In my practice, I tell patients, I'd like to do conservative therapy for six months. So we've just met for six months, it's gonna be conservative therapy. At the end of six months, if you're not satisfied, we will consider surgical therapy. And it buys me six months to personally follow them because I always get a duplex ultrasound on all these patients before and after therapy. And if there's, so it gives me a rough idea of what's going on in terms of the, the progress. Okay, great. Um, questions here about the plaque. Um, do you uh, kind of differentiate the presence of calcium or not in your plaque? I mean, here we, we do a fair amount of ultrasound, but I imagine there's some practice variation. Um, and if there's a significant amount of calcium, are they still candidates for collagenase or would you kind of proceed to more surgical options? It's a great question. And I didn't mention this, but it's important. So there's different types of calcifications, right? There's stippled calcifications, there's solid calcification. In my experience, patients with solid, particularly solid, large calcification are not good candidates for Xiflex. I tell the patient, there's no way I'm going to get a, a, a needle inside a rock. It's not going to go, right? So again, if it's solid calcification, we talk about other options, but those patients typically don't do well with intralesional injections. Okay, great. And if you don't, uh, sorry, one more thing, if you don't have an ultrasound, so some institutions, uh, I know academic institutions do, but what we used to do in my re uh, residency in the community, what people would do is they would get a KUB, an x-ray, right? Because on a KUB, if you saw a solid calcification, you would know that that patient was not a candidate for mm -hmm. intralesional injection. Yeah. That's a good trick. <laughs> um, question about the penile uh, traction device. I think you uh, kind of addressed how often you use this, you, you know, offer as an option to patients as first line. Um, for patients who get the um, collagenase injections, uh, how do you have them continue the penile traction device indefinitely? Um, do you tell yeah. them that it can come back if they stop? So when they are doing Xiaflex collagenase, I do not let them use the traction at all right? Because the, the, remember at first it was, you can't have sex two weeks after the last injection. So think about it. You got an injection, you wait a week, got an injection, and then you have to wait two weeks. And then you realize that your next injection is about three weeks later. But now the recommendation is to wait four weeks after the last injection. Mm -hmm. So really there's not much time and you're about to get your next injection. So typically I say to patients, you know, cause remember these are off label. The traction is off label. And I don't want any concern that this traction may have resulted or caused some kind of fracture. Do you know what I mean? So I say, okay, while we're doing the Xiflex, I want you off of uh, the traction device. When we finish the traction device, I want you to restart again, but I don't want the traction device to be used during this period. Also remember that I do give patients uh, Tadalafil, uh, daily Tadalafil, but I don't let them use it uh, during this period because we're trying to mitigate these erections and I'm worried about the spontaneous erection, uh, you know, fracture. So again, during this period, no Cialis, uh, no uh, traction. When we're finished with therapy, back on Cialis, back on traction. Got it. And it looks like based on the Baylor management algorithm that you posted that all patients are getting um, like a Cialis five milligrams and that's whether they have ED or not. 
No, uh, that's not true. If, if they have, uh, they, well, that's a good point. Uh, patients who have great erections and no issues, I'll leave them just with pentoxifiline, which is a poor uh, PD-5 inhibitor. I mean, uh, pentox is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor, but it's not very specific. If they have some degree of ED, which I see that most patients do, then I will add the Cialis 5. So that's a good point. You have to have some degree of ED if I'm going to give you the daily Cialis. But if you don't have any degree of ED, Pentox is just fine. Okay, great. All right, lots of questions. <laughs> um, a couple more questions here about what suture you're using for your plication. I use 2O Tycron suture. Uh, as long as you use a 2O Ethabon, something non absorbable. I think that makes sense. There was a movement for a while to use absorbables. Um, I just haven't made that leap. Uh, uh, I typically feel that using the non-absorbable is the way to go. Uh, remember that you want to try to bury those sutures and you want to counsel the patients because that's one of the counseling points. Uh, I mentioned shortening of the penis, uh, penis, but you should also say feeling the sutures as well. Uh, it's something that you want to warn them about. Okay, great. Um, and then a question here. Um, I know that the uh, you know, the approved indication for collagenase is the 30 to 90 degree um, window. Do you, what's sort of the max or, you know, do you go beyond 90 degrees and, you know, you know I, do you ever kind of go, go beyond that? I think that going, I personally will go above 90 degrees. Uh, I think those patients are the best suited for the ones I talked about priming for surgery. So you got someone that's 90, maybe 100 degrees, and you can bring them back down to say 60 and then plicate or 50 and plicate. Those are the best. The problem is about the 30 degree cutoff because insurance companies won't cover it until they see the word 30 degrees um, documented. And so if my PDX says uh, 20 degrees, uh, they're gonna say we're not covering it. So um, I'm, not, I'm leaning on the top part, but insurance companies are not leaning on the bottom number. Um, and then leftward or rightward curvature is still using collagenase for that as well? I am. I don't think there's any reason why you can't. I think collagenase has a great ability to eat the plaque, um, and uh, and uh, it's 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 effective. I just would make a comment that I don't think it's as effective on ventral curvatures. Okay, mm -hmm. so I do think that it's much more successful on lateral and dorsal curvature, but on mm -hmm. ventral curvature, uh, I find it to be less effective. And for those patients, you would be more likely to take them for operative repair, surgical repair. I think those patients tend to do well first potentially with traction. And then if they're not satisfied with traction, uh, I think, you know, look, let's be honest, the plication is an excellent surgery. Outcomes are very good if it wasn't for the penile shortening. You know, a lot of patients are very satisfied. And many times you can use the traction device before and after surgery to regain some of that length that you lost, right? So, uh, but patients are, you know, typically very satisfied with the plication. So if someone has a ventral curvature, um, I tell them, you know, I don't believe that Zyflex is going to give you the best outcome. And we should discuss plication prior with stretching before and after. Okay. And then um, I think we've actually tackled uh, all of these questions, which is awesome. Um, one last one for, for us. Um, for patients whose erectile dysfunction seems to be linked to ICI, uh, kind of, you know, do you, do you recommend that they stop the ICI? Um, and how would you manage their erectile dysfunction after that? So you're talking about intracavernosal injection therapy and you get a Peyronie disease. So, so I think the take-home message, which most of us don't do, is to, that we don't counsel patients prior to ICI that they could get Peyronie disease, right? So that's important. 
right? So the first thing is whenever you're doing your teaching in the office and you talk, te you warn about priapism, you can say that repetitive injections can cause uh, abnormal curvature of the penis. That's what we say to do it every other day. That's what we say to alternate sides because you're trying to prevent uh, injury to the tunica albuginea. So these patients, uh, though, you treat them just like you would treat any other Peyronie's disease patient, right? The, clearly, I would tell them that this Peyronie's disease is, could, now we don't know for sure, he could have developed Peyronie's disease just in general because he had a buckling trauma, not necessarily from the injection, right? But we say that this could be a reason why you develop Peyronie's disease. And then I counsel them. I say, look, if you continue, they could get worse. Uh, if you, as many men want to continue. If they're still functional, if they're still functional, uh, and they're and you, and getting good erections and they're still able to participate in sexual activity, they're going to want to continue. But I don't treat them any different and, and that I would treat anyone for my protocol for peronesis, except that I counsel them that this could be the cause. Okay, very good. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Kara, for your time. My um, pleasure. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.